0: Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. listening to Planet Pod with me Amanda Carpenter and today we are talking fair trade and all things fair and it's really really exciting to have um, Tom Hunt with us who is going to be heading up a series of special podcasts all around Chef's Manifesto. So Tom it's fabulous that you're here thanks so much um, and I'll get Tom to tell you a little bit about himself and we're also joined by David Finley, who is supply chain manager at Fair Trade. David welcome. Thank you. So, Tom, tell us how you got involved initially in in fair trade, and tell us a little bit about your background because you 've been in this whole sustainable food and the whole fair trade movement for a long time haven 't you
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, fair trade is a brand that 's been with me my whole life since I was a child. I was aware of it as a child, um, shopping in the supermarket and at health food shops too. And so when the opportunity came for me to help support them as an ambassador, I jumped jumped at the chance, really, which resulted recently in a trip to Kenya.
0: And what does being an ambassador mean for fair trade? I mean, as a chef, obviously, you're not just a chef, are you a food writer? And, you know, you have a regular column in a number of um, different outlets and magazines and journals and things. So you've got potentially quite a big market to influence, haven't you? So what does being an ambassador for fair trade mean in those terms are you able to 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 change people's minds if they need changing
1: in simple terms it just means that i'm there to support them um through the work that i do so recently our trip to ken in kind of as part of the trip to kenya i i took a lot of notes and have written several articles for the different magazines that i write for Um, and i'm also going to be doing a hot chocolate at their new speakeasy, well a speakeasy that's coming up for Fairtrade Fortnight.
0: Oh, exciting. Special secret recipe? Uh,
1: no, it's, well it's, what, what's in it? Um, so it's made with oat milk, Ivory Coast chocolate and um, some vegan marshmallows which are going to be flambéed on top as well.
0: Yum, right. I'll be oh, first and some baobab
1: queue. as well, a little bit um, of baobab. Baobab. Baobab powder. Yeah, oh, ooh, it's I kind don't... of African-inspired. So
0: That sounds fabulous. I think the, the hot chocolate sounds amazing, Tom. What about people who might not be able to get to the actual speakeasy, who may be outside London or just not around during Fairtrade fortnight? Can they get a copy of your recipe?
1: Yeah, so go to the Fairtrade website and you'll find uh, my recipe and also details of where the speakeasy will be if you want to go and join in.
0: Yeah, and presumably we'll list some suppliers too, some maybe very good quality chocolate cocoa suppliers so people um can practice at home and we could probably have a whole instagram going couldn't we tom, we get them to send pictures of their their version of your chocolate recipe
1: delicious
0: so obviously um david having ambassadors like tom is really really important um but but people you know he was saying he'd grown up with fair trade you've mm. been around a long time a lot mm. of us probably think we understand and know what fair trade is but it's mm-hmm. possible that we don't so
2: mm-hmm.
0: in a nutshell just tell pod listeners what the fair trade movement's all about
2: Absolutely. So, fair trade is a simple way of securing a fair a fair deal for the farmers who grow the food that we love and consume on a day to day basis. Globally, there's about 500 million smallholder farmers and workers who grow bananas, cocoa, coffee, tea, sugar, and so on that flows into our everyday diets. Fair trade's working with around two million of those farmers to secure them a fair deal um, in the terms of trade that they receive, so the price they receive for their produce, and also ensuring that their farming practices reach internationally recognised standards, which means safe working conditions for farmers and their families.
0: Okay, and there's absolutely no question about a, a compromise on quality, is there, because you know perhaps when it first started out people would think that I'm doing the right thing by buying fair trade but mm. I may not be doing the the thing I want to do in terms of my palate or my taste mm. so so there's no compromise on quality and there's no issue that fair trade products are not as delicious if not more delicious than others
2: absolutely not no indeed there are four and a half thousand fair trade certified products available today in over 70 markets globally so we're very confident that the quality of the products is as high as um, any other product that consumers would would consume. And indeed, it's sometimes a misconception that fair trade is somehow involved in the production of those products. We're really there to ensure that the produce that goes into products is in line with our standards and that workers have been paid fairly. And it's for the companies who manufacture the chocolate bars and the coffee to, to make the delicious food and drink that we enjoy afterwards.
0: Oh, Okay, so you're very much at the beginning of that supply chain in terms of of raw materials coming into any manufacturing process.
2: That's correct. So what we're doing is that we're ensuring that the farm groups who grow the coffee to start with, or the cocoa, or the sugar, are following recognised international best practice standards for good Mm -hmm. farming, and then we're ensuring that they're receiving a fair price for the produce that they sell, and that produce will then end up in day-to-day products that we buy in our supermarkets, whether that's bananas from Sainsbury's, whether that's coffee from Starbucks, whether that's chocolate that goes into our Kit Kat bars.
0: Mm, okay, so, so that's really important. Tom, you've actually got some really um, personal first hand experience of fair trade and growing in cooperatives, haven't you? Because recently you've been in Kenya looking at uh, a fair trade cooperative. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did and where you went and what it was like?
1: Yeah, so we, were, we all went to just west of the Rift Valley. To visit first of all the Kebang Coffee Cooperative, which in 2012 launched an amazing initiative called Growing Women in Coffee to help empower women uh, through the ownership of coffee bushes, which was basically brought to fruition with Fair Trade and was a very inspiring trip indeed.
0: And we are going to be hearing a little bit about that later. Um, David, there isn't. Growing and the Fair Trade movement are really important because people are actually not just not getting a fair deal for their crops or their fair deal for their produce they're very often not getting money into the families so is it right to say that some fair trade farmers would go hungry otherwise?
2: Mm. I mean I think this is one of the most shocking stats connected to our global food system that of the 500 million smallholder farmers who grow the food that we love and consume on a day-to-day basis more than half will go hungry at least once a year and I think we at fair trade see this as a huge injustice but also something that we can do about through our everyday consumption choices to provide farmers with a fairer deal for their hard day's work.
0: Yeah, And it's such a simple thing for us to do as consumers here, isn't it? I mean, just to pick up a fair trade product instead of a supermarket home
2: brand. Absolutely. As I say, there are literally thousands of certified products available and we're asking consumers to make a simple everyday decision to switch your bananas to fair trade, or tea or your coffee. The impact it can make for for thousands and millions of farmers globally is, is truly tremendous.
0: We're going to hear a little bit about some of the, um, you know, an excerpt from one of the interviews you did out there, which was fascinating. And actually, hearing from the woman herself, I think the first woman ever to, to be part of the project, um, and what it meant.
3: Uh, my name is Adoka Steptanui. Uh, we are at Kapkiai, Multipurpose Cooperative Society. It's a society that's producing and pulping coffee. i um, also a woman coffee here at Kapkiai. Also the lady of the women in coffee project, which was started here at Kapkei.
1: And you were one of the first women to grow your own coffee or own your own bushes, is that right?
3: Yeah, I'm the first woman.
1: Amazing. Yeah. And how did this come about?
3: Uh, it came about through uh, many experiences or challenges which we faced as women. Producing coffee. You found men were burdening us with the coffee activities, but in the end, when they received money, we had no benefit with the money.
1: Because you had no ownership? Yeah. So that led to you beginning to to to, own some of these bushes and to
3: start the group and form the Women in Coffee group, which would own their own coffee bushes. And earn their own money.
1: Amazing. Yeah. And did you ask your husband for the bushes or did he come up with the idea to donate or like to give them to you?
3: It has the women who gave up the idea of uh, sharing these coffee bushes. So we urged them or begged them to, to share the coffee bushes to us. Some agreed, some refused, but of current most of them have agreed to share the coffee bushes to their wives. That's why the coffee women number is rising tremendously.
1: So there's been, since you started, since you were the first woman to start growing your own coffee, there's been a huge change. And now men are, like, really engaging with this idea and, and, and want to give the bushes to the women. Why do you think this change has happened over time?
3: Ah, uh, this changes happen because the this man sees uh, saw the benefits of giving their uh, the, the, the the men who gave the coffee bushes to their wives. Okay, they are prospering. Yeah. Their, their their burdens in their families have been uplifted. So you find they are encroaching by giving their wives. That's why I told you the number of uh, uh, women in coffee is rising. Yeah, so fast. It sounds yeah, like a really in the cooperative.
1: Su- sounds like a real success story. Uh-huh. How have your lives changed in that way?
3: Um you find with me specifically as a coffee woman farmer I have a biogas plant. As women leaders. A
1: biogas plant.
3: Yeah. Bio- bio- what is a biogas plant? It is a biodigester. Okay. Whereby uh, we collect manure and uh, put it in the, in the biodigester. Later on, it emits a uh, methane gas which you use uh, in the, cook, uh, the biogas cooking stoves. And where does the manure come from? From our local cows.
1: Okay. Yeah. And that produces energy and gas which you can then cook on. Yeah. Amazing. And why, And why also,
3: it produces the bio slurry which is the manure, it's the byproduct of the biogas plant. Okay. We use it to uh, feed our coffees as fertilizer. It's a manure. It's an organic manure.
1: Amazing. Yeah. How has that helped you here?
3: It has helped to reduce smoke, health, health-wise. Okay. Women are no more experience smoke in their kitchens. Because so their lungs are free from smoke, and also cleanliness. You find their utensils are very clean, no more smoke or no more soot. <laughs> <laughs> Time for uh, fetching wood in the uh, uh, forests. Has been minimized because they use the methane gas in their uh, biodigesters to cook with the stoves.
1: Basically, there's a huge difference in tradition there. The men own everything from the land to the women themselves and the children. And often that can become very complicated in terms of the finances. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some severe examples of uh, women and children not receiving food um, just after the the farm had been paid or the farmer, the, the, the husband or the, the father had been paid. And so I think this created... Uh, well, obviously it was kind of reaching a critical point where um, fair trade came in and also through their own kind of local initiatives, they decided to kind of come up with this project called Growing Women in Coffee, which essentially gave the women ownership of the coffee bushes. Okay. So for the first time in kind of rural Kenya, women were gaining ownership over something, which then enabled them to have their own bank accounts, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a huge independence and, and has, from, from the trip, really, it, it kind of showed us how much it's improved everyone's lives, the men and the women, um, having that kind of independence. And it's kind of stopped feuds, family feuds, and kind of really changed the course of history.
0: Um, were the, the men resistant? At all,
1: some men were resistant. Yes, um, we whilst we were there, we went to uh, the different co- well. We went to the cooperative meetings and met the board, um, men and women, and they kind of told us the whole history of it, really. And it began at, when it first began. There was a lot of resistance to it, um, but women are literally tripling the production, the yield of production improving the quality of the coffee and bringing more money into the household full stop. I think the thing to remember is that, I mean, as a Westerner, as an outsider, this very different uh, way of life, I was quite initially quite critical of the men and that I, you know, the concept that they own everything is is kind of quite different isn't it and it's yeah, it's like okay it's complicated and it doesn't show the equality that that fair trade and that is now happening naturally within the country itself um but um i think what what you have to remember is that they are living way like off a very small amount of money um yeah,
0: semi-subsistence so i guess yeah
1: and and so actually kind of the extra income that the women are now bringing into the family by improving the production of of the coffee yields even from the same bushes you know so um
0: can we ask why the women were much better coffee growers than their husbands and brothers and fathers had been
1: um because they care they care for the the crop um and because of this particularly because of this initiative so i think having ownership over the coffee bushes themselves rather than being told by the men they have to go and, um, th- the farm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's the, the, so that, yeah, it's really impressive. I mean.
0: Mm. Um, but, but we're talking about social structural change here. Really, mm. aren't we? We're not just talking about growing a raw ingredient mm-hmm. for something that might end up in a, you know, in a, in a Western coffee shop. This is mm. Fundamentally shifting the social mm. dynamic of a community. Mm-hmm. Mm. How does fair trade manage that? Because that's quite delicate territory.
2: Yeah, extremely delicate. And I think, especially a theme, for example, women's economic empowerment is is probably the most delicate of all the areas that we work in. Uh, and to build on the points that Tom raised in the context of Kenya specifically, by law, if you want to sell coffee, you must be a member of a cooperative. But to be a member of a cooperative, you must own land. And as Tom referenced. The vast majority of landowners are men, so the vast majority of cooperative members are men. And this project has helped women to move into income earning positions by giving them bushes and then enabling them to join cooperatives and um, to sell independently. But as you reference, Amanda, this work is highly sensitive, and we work very much in partnership with the communities um, where uh, coffee farming or banana farming takes place. And we work especially through local staff who are themselves embedded in the cultures within which these farmers operate, who work sensitively to demonstrate the benefits to women and to the men also. And I think in the case of the Women in Coffee project, it was really the the partnership between Fairtrade and men and women which led to this change. It was not the case that Fairtrade came in with a kind of Western-centric worldview and just isolated the women for, in quotation marks, special treatments we worked very carefully through highly skilled local staff to convince men and women together that this way of allocating resources would actually lead to benefits at the household level, which would bring better outcomes for children, better outcomes for women, but also better outcomes for men as well, because the increased income that the household experiences through increased productivity that Tom referenced was was really very much directly connected to this work.
0: Yeah, I mean it has to work for the community you're in, and it has to be sensitive and appropriate, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we talk about on Planet Pod is is the general issue of sustainability, and Mm. and is it is it right to say that a fair trade approach to production would Mm. be more sustainable in in the in the Mm -hmm. environmental sense? Absolutely. Or is there is there no linkage between those two?
2: Yeah. So we really see our work along two main planes. One is around responsible production, and the second is around responsible trade. The responsible production component of our work is absolutely focused on supporting farm groups to uptake leading good agricultural practices and sustainable farming techniques which may include for example removing certain types of pesticide from their uh, production processes ensuring that the farm environment is safe for Mm -hmm. workers and farmers to work in as well as addressing deep-rooted social challenges for example child labour Now, all of these different uh, factors and criteria are built into the fair trade standards for commodities like coffee and cocoa and tea and so on. And the work which our local staff lead is really supporting farm groups to align with those standards of responsible production. On the trade side, we then support these farm groups to access markets in exchange for a guaranteed minimum price. And then a premium payment, which is extra income, which the farmers themselves will vote on, spending back into their farm businesses or into the communities where they're based.
0: Okay and is there any issue, I mean if you're somewhat artificially setting a price does that mm. present problems or challenges?
2: So I think the minimum price is possibly one of the most contentious elements of the fair trade model. Mm-hmm. We set a minimum price not to incentivize market inefficiencies as some economists would level against fair trade but actually there. Uh, to have a safety nets to protect farmers from price shocks. Now if you imagine yourself as a farmer in Uganda for example you grow coffee as your primary cash crop and today the international price of coffee may be a pound a kilo or whatever the figure happens to be. Now if the price were to drop to say 60p a kilo next month that would have a huge and deleterious effect on your income and if to start with you're only earning a few hundred pounds a year to see that income go down by as much as 40% because of a price shock is, in our view, an injustice which farmers themselves should not have to bear. So the concept of the, the minimum price is to ensure that if the cost, the sale price of a product goes below the cost of production, that the farmer is at least recompensed that cost of production. So we're not interfering in markets to make them inefficient, we're interfering to make them um, Safer places for it's presenting
0: for, a buffer, it's providing a buffer, it's a buffer, isn't it? Because if you're a very exactly. small provider, a producer, it's very difficult yeah. to, to weather those economic shocks, isn't it? It's absolutely not the same as if you're a massive producer,
2: absolutely. Tom, think,
0: sorry, go on.
1: It's worth saying as well that um, there's other kind of hidden benefits yeah. as well from being a fair trade certified cooperative. It was clear that whilst we were there in Kenya, that the kind of the rules and regulations and education that was provided to the farmers improved the like, the quality of the coffee that they were producing and the yield quite okay. dramatically. And so obviously that's a, a huge rise in income and mm. also um, desirability on the market. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. And do you think there are parallels with, with the kind of sustainable food movement in the UK? Because I mean, obviously, Tom, that's your background. You've been in sustainable food a long time. You know, you're a restaurateur. Is, are there lessons we could be learning about how we produce and manage the supply chain around food in the UK that actually Fairtrade have been practising for a long time? Is that about localism? Is it about you know this whole issue of actually making sure that we're keeping those products sustainable and we're not putting you know fertilisers into the soil and we don't need to? Are there other are parallels or is that...?
1: Um, I think, well, Fairtrade as a certification body for me comes under the vast umbrella of kind of food sustainability because it's important that the people that produced our food are looked after. And so that, for me, is kind of vital in terms of food sustainability. Um, I think drawing parallels between that and local food maybe doesn't quite make sense to me. What I'm, The way I think of fair trade... And why they're important as a certification body is is because we're sourcing ingredients from far away. That really, without a third-party audit and certification like Fairtrade, we're only taking the uh, the supplier's word for it, or the the you know the the company, the product company's word for it, basically and that's i one of the problems i see with direct trade i think direct trade is often much better mm. um, but how direct is that trade you you again you're taking you know it, they might uh, say bean to bar on a on a bar of chocolate but what degree of Kind of, I don't know. How, have they actually met every farmer? That they're how
0: rigorous is that? How rigorous chain? is that yeah. supply
1: chain? And yeah. you're you're so really kind of fair trade is there for that reason, and that's kind of why I value what they're doing.
0: But but I, my, I suppose my point about parallels was that you know so much of our production, agricultural production in the UK now is mm. is quite large scale, isn't it? It's almost mm. it's factory based. Mm-hmm. So you know how confident are we? that some of the things that we're buying have been sustainably and well managed. I know there was a scandal around the red tractor, wasn't there, recently. So it, that, I suppose that's what was behind my question, is that it, the sense of wanting to move to a sustainable production environment, and so we as consumers can be absolutely certain that what we're buying has been produced without elements mm. of you know w- mm. worker exploitation, mm. and without extra waste. So maybe there's a time for us to be drilling down into the supply chain in the UK around sustainability, because I'm not sure that that's done as much as it could be done.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really important that we spend as much time as possible lo- meeting the, the farmers and getting to know our food producers. Unfortunately, mm. I mean, when it comes to kind of fresh produce, 90% of the food I buy is kind of from local markets. Often, where you can speak to the farmer themselves so
0: but you're probably in quite an unusual position i mean a lot of people who you know who shop regularly for a family say and i guess a lot of people who listen to the pod are not able to have that luxury you know they have to go to their local supermarket and they're buying stuff hopefully not in plastic but they may be forced to be doing that too so they're not able to trace that supply chain back are we as consumers we have to take the word of our of our retailer very often for it so it's what can we... I mean, are the things that we should be doing as a, as, as, as a food movement into ensuring that some of that more, you know, sustainable supply chain is evident in the food that we're buying?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, for me, that's where the Soil Association comes in mm. as another certification body. I mean, you've mentioned affordability or kind of the ease of being able to shop from a market. Um, my general advice is that if you can order if you don't have time or a local market to visit then now you can pretty much get a national uh there's like box schemes available nationally where you can base your weekly shop on seasonal produce Mm. uh that has come from direct from a farm which is as good as going to a farmer's market or better um and and a really affordable way to eat uh especially when you're eating more plants and pulses and really yeah it kind of allows and creates a budget for buying those soil association or fair trade certified products when you do have to go to the supermarket
0: yeah yeah and i think that that's i mean that's really what we're we're trying to think about in that wider series of podcasts that you're going to be heading up around the chef's manifesto and we just just talk those of us who haven't been as aware of some of the sdgs and the sdgs the global goals are really important to planet pod and we talk about them a lot but goal two about ending hunger and that's what's driven this global movement that's resulted in the chef's manifesto tom what is the chef's manifesto
1: so the sdg2 advocacy hub for zero hunger headed up by paul Newnham has created the chef's manifesto which is their kind of key initiative really for kind of driving that change i think they've seen the influence that chefs uh can have they're the middle the middleman man really or woman um, person I should say um, that that kind of bridges the gap between the producers the farmers and customers and, and, and eaters really so they're able to communicate um, what is important some of the time around kind of how food should be produced and so really what Paul and the SDG2 advocacy hub have done is created this chefs manifesto, which is an eight-point manifesto which communicates to chefs how they can improve their food sustainability. Really, because food sustainability is, of course, linked to hunger in the world. So, so it's all connected, and and I think that's kind of what um, we're doing, and it and so. Yeah, the podcast that that we're going to be making is really taking each of those eight manifesto points and then drilling down into them, unpacking them and talking to other experts and chefs um, around the world to kind of help communicate those goals further.
0: And we really want to influence public behaviour as a result of that, don't we? We want people to change and do things differently and not just by fair trade, but look at, as you've said, the sustainable sourcing of what they do and i think cutting back on waste and your point about you know shopping based on what you you know eating what you've bought and and doing your shopping and planning and actually not having food waste which is what happens when you get lured into the supermarket and buy too much so that's a kind of really key element of of behavior change um before we kind of wind up i just wanted to i mean we know that fair trade is about coffee and chocolate mm. and things but there's a lot more to it and as you're celebrating the 25th anniversary mm. I, I think david you were saying that there are other areas that you really want people to start thinking about that some of us might not have thought about that mm. are not really food related but are fair trade related
2: absolutely so yeah as we are in our 25th year it's a good time to raise the profile of some new areas which fair trade is working in we have more recently moved into working in um cotton and textile supply chains that's now possible to buy fair trade clothing and more recently still we've moved into mineral supply chains in particular we now have a range of fair trade gold bearing products whether that's in jewelry or in um, technology products that we use and it may surprise some of your listeners to know that there is gold in your iphone there's gold in a lot of tech products that we use on a day-to-day basis without realizing it and for us at fair trade where the last 25 years have largely focused on cash crops and farming And that will continue to be the staple of our work. Looking forward to the next 25 years, we see there as being huge potential for working with miners and small mining communities who are recovering these precious materials which fold into our jewellery and tech products, perhaps without us realising it. Uh, And maybe just to pour some profile onto that sector, there are 40 million people involved in artisanal and small-scale mining globally, recovering minerals like gold and stones, including gemstones and so on. That makes this ASM sector by workforce the second largest in the world after agriculture. But next to nobody's heard about it. Thank but goodness. our our positive message to consumers is that it's possible to responsibly source from these small scale mine sites. And it's possible for these small scale mine sites to responsibly recover material. So in the same way that we've worked over the last 25 years to connect coffee lovers with responsibly produced and fairly traded coffee Really, the next chapter for us will be doing the same thing uh, for the jewellery on our rings and around our necks, and for the gold and other materials that flow into our tech products.
0: Really, really important. I mean, an important not just from from the fairness, equality point of view, but again from the sustainability yeah. point of view. And that's one of those issues that you know that we all see and don't really know what to do about. Is disposal of things and buying things that, that have not been sourced in a in a planet polluting way,
1: and I'm very proud of my gold ring that was fair trade certified. Recently <laughs> married,
0: recently married, <laughs> good for you, Tom. Is there um, from you? Is there any really lasting lessons from your trip? Because I know the Kenya trip was the second one you've done from Fair Trade. What would be if you had to sum up some of the lessons that you've brought away that you want to share with people?
1: Um, for me it was just the positive impact that Fairtrade had, had there and how empowered everyone there was through kind of working together as a cooperative. Um, for me, the cooperative kind of business model is also really interesting and one another way that people can help support the producers of their food.
0: Mm. And one we use here too. I mean, it's not exclusively to, exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a growing movement here, and, and started here many years ago. But it's a, a growing movement of, of food production and other forms of business, mm. isn't it? You know, the idea that we're we're sharing it together. I'm really excited about the series of podcasts that we're going to be producing around the Chef's Manifesto, and there's more to come from your trip because I think we're putting together a special where people can hear a few more excerpts of some of the interviews that you did. Um, but for now, it's um, our message is go out and buy fair trade. Isn't it to everyone in Fairtrade Fortnite and beyond? Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at Planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production, hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter. Edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.